0: Let's look at the problem of perilous times, and it boils down to this, people are the problem, not programs, not policies, not procedures, it is people, people who will be behind the programs, the policies, the procedures, but people who bring unrighteous attitudes into the environment of a local group of believers.
1: More specifically, the problems in our churches come from certain people with certain attitudes and doctrines. And that's what we'll be discussing today on Verse by Verse. Thanks for tuning in. Verse by Verse is a daily radio Bible class led by Pastor Steve Kreloff, the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Our present study is from 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're talking about how to survive in difficult times. It's hard to think of a time when the church has not been under attack. In fact, I don't think there ever has been such a time. Satan has attacked with all sorts of schemes and from all sorts of directions, but he has the most success when he attacks from within. So that's where we need to be really ready. Now here's Pastor Steve to begin today's study.
0: If you were devious enough to come up with the thought of destroying a local church, how would you do it? If you wanted to destroy a local church, how would you go about doing it? Now maybe you've never thought of it, Then again, maybe you have. I don't know. But how would you do it? Let me suggest some thoughts that you might come up with. uh, If you wanted to destroy a church, a local church, you might think about persecution. Just persecute the church. Make believers uh, into persecuted believers. Well, that doesn't work. That doesn't destroy a church because the churches in the book of Acts were persecuted and yet they flourished. They were stronger after they were persecuted than before. So that doesn't work. How about uh, financial problems? You know, just, just hurt them financially. Just uh, cut them where they really are, are hurting. Well, the early church had a lot of financial problems. They had slaves who had absolutely no money. Most or much of the Roman Empire was made up of slaves. They didn't have anything that belonged to them. And yet the, uh, the church became stronger for it. Those who did have money and did have financial ways of helping did that, and they strengthened each other. And in the book of Acts, we're told that the church at Jerusalem just had the attitude that if you need what I have, then I give it to you. And so they were stronger. It was an opportunity to minister. How about this thought, take away their buildings? Well, uh, the early church had no buildings called church buildings. They met in homes. And so really, uh, persecution, financial problems, lack of buildings, none of these external pressures can destroy a local church. Outside pressure only produces internal strength. However, if you really want to destroy a church, you have to attack it from within. You have to attack it from within. The church, in a sense, has to become its own enemy. You have to have some internal disorder to cripple the body of Christ External problems don't do it. The church uh, in China and the church in, in Russia has found that out. The external pressures have only internalized its purity and strengthened it. One Christian physician has written an analogy between destroying the human body and the church, which is also called the body, known as the body of Christ. And he says this, and I quote, he is a surgeon, and here's what he has to say. Sometimes a dreaded thing occurs in the body, a mutiny resulting in a tumor. A tumor is called benign if its effects is fairly localized and it stays within the membrane boundaries. But the most traumatizing condition in the body occurs when disloyal cells defy inhibition. They multiply without any checks on them, spreading rapidly throughout the body, choking out normal cells. White cells armed against foreign invaders will not attack the body's own mutinous cells. Physicians fear no other malfunction more deeply. It is called cancer. For for still mysterious reasons, these cells, and they may be cells from the brain, liver, kidney, bone, blood, skin, or other tissues, grow wild, out of control. Each is a healthy, functioning cell, but disloyal, no longer acting in regard for the rest of the body. Even the white cells, the dependable palace guard, can destroy the body through rebellion. Sometimes they recklessly reproduce, clogging the bloodstream, overloading the lymph system, strangling the body's normal functions, such is leukemia. He writes, because I am a surgeon and not a prophet, I tremble to make the analogy between cancer in the the physical body and mutiny in the spiritual body, the body of Christ. But I must. In his warnings to his church, Jesus Christ showed no concern about the shocks and bruises his body would meet from external forces. He said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. He moved easily, unthreatened, among sinners and criminals, but he cried out against the kind of disloyalty that comes from within. End of quote. Having people on the inside of a church who don't belong, who have no right to be there, who shouldn't be there, who are not a part of the family of God, or who are out of sync with the rest of the body of Christ, will cripple, spiritually, a local church. It may be very wealthy, it may be a very successful church, it may have a lot of status in the community, but spiritually speaking, strength-wise, it will cripple it. This was the problem that was facing Timothy in the church at Ephesus and this is the background of Paul's letter in Second Timothy. In fact, it's the background in First Timothy as well. But I'd like you to turn to Second Timothy chapter three. Because the problem in Second Timothy is that false teachers, false believers, had come into the church. They did not belong to Christ. They should not have been there, but they were there. And there were a fulfillment of Paul's prediction years earlier in Acts chapter 20. That savage wolves will come in amongst you, not sparing the flock. They were destroying the church. False believers. Because false believers will bring their false doctrines into the church. And when false doctrine is brought into the church, it will affect behavior. And so you'll have false lifestyles. Inconsistent with the rest of the word of God. So let's look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, because that is the thrust of the first few verses in 2 Timothy 3 about false believers who've come into the church. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, "'Haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, "'holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, and avoid such men as these. "'For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, "'weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses,' Always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men of depraved mind, rejected as regards the faith. But they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, as also that of those two came to be. Paul is calling Timothy's attention to what the span of time called the last days will be characterized by. In verse 1, he says, these will be difficult times, Timothy. They'll be menacing times. They'll be threatening times. They'll be, in the way the ancients used this word, it'll be like an ugly wound. It'll be something that is so serious that it could be life-threatening. It will be difficult. And you need to know how to survive these days. You need to know. Now, there's a prediction that he gives in verse 1. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. Now, Timothy already was in the last days because the last days are those days called the church age. When Jesus came, he brought the last days with him. And those last days exist until Jesus comes again. So we are living in the last days. As we get closer to the time of Christ's return, the rapture of the church is the last of the last days. But the span of time called the last days is now. It's the church age. It's the age of grace. It is today. It is the contemporary scene. And Paul is saying, understand this, Timothy, if you are to survive these last days and these difficult days, you must understand, first of all, that these days are permanent. These difficult times are permanent. And that's the point of verse one. But realize this, understand this with the implication that Timothy didn't understand this, that Timothy may have had the attitude of, I'll just lay low for a while. I'll just kind of hide out. And when all this this spiritual garbage floats over me, then after it's gone, I'll I'll come to the top and I'll peer out and I'll see what's going on. Timothy's not to assume that he can lay low. Paul is saying it won't be all right. It won't get any easier. This is here to stay, Timothy. These are permanent difficult days. It's not like uh, when you have a boo-boo and you go to mama and she says, I'll kiss it and make it better. It's not going to get any better. In fact, he says... Later on, he says that uh, evil men will wax worse. It's just going to get worse. It's not getting any better. So don't live in a fool's paradise. Don't think that it's going to turn out all right in the sense of the church age. Ultimately, it's going to turn out all right, as we studied this morning. But in the church age, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be some rotten times. So the first thing you need to know, Timothy, and the first thing we need to know in surviving these difficult days is that they're permanent, they're going to continue. They're lasting, so don't think it's temporary. As he moves into verse 2, Paul begins to focus on the problem of difficult times. He's moved from the, from the permanency of it to the problem. What's the cause? What's the, the, the reason for this problem that the church will always have and it will always plague the church? Well, the problem is people. The problem is people. That's what we want to focus on tonight, the kind of people that you and I are told in verse 5 to avoid. Avoid such as these. And he's going to mention a number of qualities and characteristics of these people. Why? Because you need to know what they're like. You need to identify them to know who to avoid. And you do need, we all need to avoid certain people in the church. And that's what he is saying at the end of verse 5. Avoid such men as these. Now understand, he is talking about the church. He is not talking about society. He is talking about the church However, he is giving us a glimpse of society, not only in the first century, but society today. It's always been this way. I think today, perhaps the intensity level is worse, stronger. But he is saying when society comes into the church, this is what you can expect. You no longer have just the church in its pure stages. Maybe you had that in the first few days of the church of Jerusalem, first few weeks. But as time goes on, you have the, the tares that grow up with the wheat. And you have people who come into the church. And today you have people who think it's a social thing to go to church. And you have false teachers. And you have people on television who are propagating lies. And you have people on radio and the pulpits. And they write books. And they sell magazines. And they're lies. And they're not true. And this is what happens when the world comes in and sits in the pews in the church. And so he is telling us what these people are like, and you are getting a good picture of society. However, he is talking about those in society who make their way into the church, claim to be believers, but in reality are not. So we need to avoid them because uh, they'll affect you. It'll rub off. It'll rub off on me. You hang around the wrong people, and this kind of stuff becomes infectious. It poisons you. It will affect you. That's why we're told to hang around with godly people. We're told to associate and walk with spiritual people. Because we rub shoulders with them, we strengthen each other, we learn from each other. So, we need to learn what the problem of perilous times is all about. And I'm going to run through this, in fact, I'm not going to run through it tonight, we're going to look at this list. And you ought to pay careful attention to this, because when he gets to verse 5, he says, avoid such men as these, and if you don't know what to avoid, you will not be able to do this, and you will be sucked into this type of behavior or something like it. So let's look at the problem of perilous times. We said last week, and it boils down to this, people are the problem, not programs, not policies, not procedures. It is people, people who will be behind the programs, the policies, the procedures, but people who bring unrighteous attitudes into the environment of a local group of believers. And the root of the problem is found at the beginning of verse two, for men will be Lovers of self. In other words, Timothy, understand in the last days difficult times will come because men will love themselves. That's really the crux of the problem. Men and women, he's talking about mankind in a generic sense, not just men as opposed to women. Men and women, boys and girls will love themselves and they won't love God. A person who loves the Lord with all of his heart, doesn't act like this, doesn't have this attitude. They are literally self-lovers. They love self. They are fond of themselves. They have a deep affection, but it's reserved only for them. Love of self is the basic sin from which all the other sins flow. Everything else gets back to that. Everything else. Self-promotion, self-centeredness. This is our world. This has always been society. Self-lovers... Preoccupied with self, preoccupied with what promotes me. When life centers around me, then everybody else has problems because I'm going to rush through life being unconcerned about anybody else who gets in my way. Because my agenda is to promote myself. And if I do that, then you better watch out because you're only either you'll help me promote myself or you get in the way and I'll crush you. That's the attitude of society. And the church is in for major, major problems when that happens. Because you don't sin in a vacuum. Your sin affects everybody else. Sin is never isolated. Our society is made up of self-lovers. That's the way the world is. It promotes itself. We've got self-esteem. And I'm not talking about just having a proper attitude towards yourself because you're in Christ. I'm talking about this love of self that promotes self-esteem and self-image and the body beautiful and self-assertion and you've got self-rights and and uh, the whole problem is is really you don't love yourself and you've got psychologists telling you, you got to love yourself and you got to live for yourself and you got to assert yourself at work and you've got to tell people what you think and you get the Bible doesn't say that. Society may call this humanism and they do, but the Bible calls it selfishness just an old-fashioned sin called selfishness. Now, I'm going to tell you something that uh, uh, maybe you've never heard of, maybe you've never thought of. There is not, to my knowledge, there is not one verse in the Bible that commands us to love ourselves. Not one verse. Nowhere will you find in the Bible any statement that says love yourself. Now, immediately, uh, if you know your Bible, two verses come to mind. Matthew 22, Jesus said you should love God, with all of your heart, soul, and mind, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. He didn't say love yourself. He said love your neighbor. The other verse that would come to your mind most likely is Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 28, so husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. Bible doesn't say there love yourself. It says love your wife as you love yourself. Let me explain. The Bible merely assumes that we do love ourselves and it calls us to love others with the same kind of affection that we normally reserve for ourselves. The Bible doesn't have to tell us to love ourselves. God understands that we struggle with this, God understands that that's the problem. In other words, the Bible recognizes that we do. Ha, we do pay attention to ourselves. We do promote ourselves. That's part of our fallenness. We do love ourselves, and we need to be as preoccupied with promoting the welfare of others as we do with our own welfare. That's, that's what Matthew 22 and Ephesians 5 is saying. As you love yourself. So husbands, love your wives. As you love yourself, love your neighbors. It never commands us to love self. It never co- tells us to be a people who are consumed with self and pay a lot of attention to self and so forth. Salvation, in fact, is designed to turn us away from self, self-lovers, into lovers of God who live not to promote ourselves but to him, promote him. Let me show you what I mean. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, you don't need to turn there, but I'll read it. It says, And he died for all, that is Christ, that they who live should no longer live for themselves. No longer love yourselves. Now understand, not talking about having a healthy view of yourself, but to love and to pamper and to, to really be overly concerned about yourself, but for him who died and rose on their behalf. Salvation by its very design is is supposed to the purpose of salvation, at least one purpose, is to change you into a lover of God, to live for him, not to live for yourself. In Philippians chapter two, the same, uh, the same point. Is there, and I, I don't think I need to turn there, but basically, Philippians chapter 2 is saying, Have this mind in you. Jesus Christ, He came, He emptied Himself. Now, this is the way you ought to be, and you ought to esteem others as better than yourselves. The Bible assumes that we do have some esteem of ourselves, and we do take care of ourselves. It's just saying, Now you ought to know you ought to take care of others, and look on them, and be concerned about their needs. Now, when the church has people who live for themselves, promote their own interests, care only uh, for their needs to be met, it leads to other sinful attitudes. And that's what we're going to look at. We're going to go through this list, and we're going to see list of people and problems and the kind of people you should avoid and the attitudes you should avoid so that you're not infected by this disease. He says, for men will be lovers of self. And then he says, lovers of money. Now, this naturally flows out of loving self because we learn very, at a very early age that if I want something and I want my desires fulfilled, it might cost money. In fact, it usually does cost money. I can get things through money. And so I become a lover of money really because I am a lover of self. That's behind materialism. That's behind covetousness. It's self-gratification. The reason people indulge themselves and become materialists is because they love themselves. That's That's the reason covetousness is simply the outgrowth of a a preoccupation with self. That's why I'm covetous. That's why I I want to gratify my own needs. That's why I'm a materialist. That's why that would be the case of anybody, because we love ourselves. When you encounter a church that is consumed and concerned about the status business-wise of its people, their financial Uh, accounts, their prestige, their their financial status in the community, then you have met a church where self-love dominates. You have met a church where who's who is very important and how much money and do you fit in here and do you wear the the right clothes? That is a church that their main problem is not that they love money, their main problem is that they love themselves. And this, this affects many churches Uh, This affects many Christians. Uh, Morals no longer matter. I don't make a business decision. I don't make a financial decision based on whether it's ethically right, whether it's morally right. No, I make it on whether it can prosper me. In other words, principle is replaced by profit. That's what really counts. That's really the issue. And yet the Bible speaks so very plainly, clearly on this. It says in 1 Timothy 6.10 that the root of of all evil is what? The love of money. Not money. Money is our moral. Money is is neither good nor bad. It's our attitude towards it. But when you love it, whether you have it or not, that's another issue. But you don't have to have it to love it. When you love it, the Bible is very clear. It's the root of all kinds of evil. It, It leads to murder. It leads to robbery. It leads to divorce. It leads to all kinds of things. But beyond that is the love of self. Paul wrote that an elder and a deacon must not love money. They must not be silver lovers. They must not be money lovers. Yet in spite of the clarity of God's word about loving money, one of the heresies that's sweeping across churches today is the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel. I have a, a book in, uh, that I borrowed from a friend dealing with this whole issue and, and the historical background of it. And it is amazing some of the things that are happening in the name of, of the Bible, and yet it's really... Uh, ought to be in the name of of loving money and materialism and loving self. And the health and wealth gospel assumes that it is your spiritual right to be healthy and wealthy. It it, it assumes it. It's your spiritual right. Now understand. Understand what is really behind the mentality of, of this view towards wealth. False teachers in the Bible are characterized by greed and love for money. It is, it is not by accident that false teachers are into this prosperity gospel.
1: Self-fulfillment should be a byproduct of a life committed to service and sacrifice. But in this upside-down world, satisfaction of the self has become a goal in and of itself, leading to a planet full of unfulfilled, disappointed, and often angry people. And it's just as bad in churches as it is on Wall Street. You've been listening to Verse by Verse with Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. And I'm glad you could be here today. Pastor Steve is the teaching pastor at Lakeside. And if you'd like to give Lakeside a try some Sunday morning, Pastor Steve would enjoy meeting you. The address is 1893 Sunset Point Road in Clearwater. Service times are on the website lakesidechapel.com or call 727-441-1714. Today's broadcast is the start of Pastor Steve's second sermon in this series from 2 Timothy. If you just joined us today and want to catch up, you can stream or download previous programs at our website, firstbyverseradio.org. Click on the message archive link. That's firstbyverseradio.org. And don't forget that we depend on supporters like you to keep these Bible classes on the air. There's giving information on the website, or you can call the church if the Lord is leading you to make a gift or maybe even become a regular supporter. The church's phone number, once more, is 727-441-1714. Thank you for your gifts and for your prayers. This is Jerry Peterson. Thanks for listening. At the start of today's broadcast, I mentioned that we need to be ready for the difficulties Satan will throw in our path. To be ready, we need to know what to look for, Pastor Steve will move on to those verses on our next verse by verse.